Welcome back to the Revolution in Ideology podcast. I'm Jared. I'm Nick. And uh, we are diving right back into our deep uh, exploration of ideology and its development here, most specifically in the Western world. And to do that, we need to deconstruct monotheism's role in uh, affecting our ideal and material constructs. We left off in the last episode talking about the uh, Romanization of Christianity or the Christianization of Rome, you pick, both work together. And we're now going to continue on uh, essentially after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. Now, again, if you remember from the last episode, we talked real briefly about a emperor named Diocletian who essentially split the empire into four parts. Eventually, those four parts coalesce into two, a West and an East. The East eventually evolves into what historians call the Byzantines. We're not going to talk about them in this episode. We're going to talk about what happened to the West. And eventually, due to both internal and external issues, it collapses. I'm sure there are like Roman historians sitting at home like gritting their teeth that I didn't go into more depth there, but we just – it's not necessary for what we're exploring right now. So before we kind of uh, kick this thing off, anything you want to add, Nick? No, I just do want to say that this is an ambitious episode. We want to end discussing the divine right, um, but to get there, we have to blow through a bunch of history real fast. So fasten your seatbelts. There's going to be a lot of content in a short period of time. So here we go. Okay, so essentially the two main institutions that we want to focus on that are left intact after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, and, and it doesn't collapse like overnight or anything like that, sort of a who's who of migrating peoples go through there and sack Rome. It, it, it was almost like a, a coming-of-age story for all of these different groups of people, Visigoths or, or Vandals or whoever. But two of the remaining institutions that the people that remained in this Western or what used to be the Western Roman Empire um, that, that, that stuck around, the two main institutions were the remnants of the Latifundia system, which, as you'll recall from the last episode, are like those large landed estates. And we mentioned back then that these might be somewhat of a setting a material precedent for what feudalism would become. Well, we're going to talk about that now. The other institution that remained intact, of course, would be the Universal Church or the Catholic Church. And, of course, both of these institutions began to further and further consolidate their power over the coming uh, centuries, essentially. Um, especially when we talk about the church, eventually it's able to divorce itself from the emperor, which, again, we'll talk a little bit about that today. Um, it takes centuries. It does not happen overnight either. But... Um, with that, we're going to talk about two main groups of people. It doesn't mean that these are the only two groups of people that shape Western Europe and, of course, Western ideology, but they are two of the more influential ones that we feel like we want to talk about today to really give uh, the listeners an example of what divine right will come to mean. Uh, and those two groups of people are eventually what we would what, – what comprise the English people. It's not, it's not pure. It's a conglomerate of other peoples and the Frankish people. So without further ado, I want to – uh, allow Nick to pick up on this history right away of the Angles and Saxons. Yeah, we're going to sort of weave in and out between mainland Europe and what's going on in Britain. Uh, so we're going to kind of do those two histories kind of side by side. So I'll be doing mainly the British side and Jared will be doing the rest of mainland Europe. So yeah, let's jump in with the Angles and the Saxons. Like Jared said, the collapse of the Roman Empire happens. And like he said, it's not like overnight, but in the early 400s, the Roman Empire basically largely abandons Britain. Uh, in fact, in 407 uh, specifically, they basically bounce. They're getting attacked by all fronts, uh, on all fronts, and they leave. 
the Anglo-Saxons, um, which are, like Jared said, the Angles and the Saxons, even though this term itself is imperfect because it was, as Jared mentioned, a conglomerate of people with extreme ethnic diversity. But we're going to stick with the term because it's most commonly used and people kind of are familiar with that. The Angles and the Saxons, they invade and take control in 410. So basically, if you were just a native living there, you got three years to chill on your own between the Romans and the Angles and the Saxons. So what's going on there? It's estimated, it's a conservative estimate is that there were about 200,000 um, Angles and Saxons that invade, and the natives in the area were about 800,000. Um, let me say that again, just so it's clear. The natives that lived there, there were about 800,000 of, of them, and the invaders, there were 200,000. This leads to a massive scholarly debate of how 200,000 invaders were able to conquer 800,000 uh, of the natives, and there's no real, like, one right, this is the absolute answer. For a really long time, scholars thought that it was just the military um, superiority of the Angles and the Saxons, but that, and that was actually the going theory for a really long time. However, with the modern uh, invention of DNA technology, they were able to trace the DNA of modern Britons and learned that uh, many of them still have native Britain DNA, which suggests that these cultures basically assimilated uh, with one another rather than one completely wiping out the other. So one of the theories that came about as a result of this DNA technology, it, it actually kind of lends itself to sort of this financial hypothesis that there must have been some benefit for the natives to join with the Angles and the Saxons, for them to assimilate together. And this leads us to an important term, which is Vergild. W-E-R-G-I-L-D. It literally translates to man payment. So this is a payment that was common in Anglo-Saxon culture that if a man died, his family would be paid this amount. You can think of it kind of like life insurance. Um, but it's important to understand that during this period, the natives of this territory only got this Vergild if they joined the Anglo-Saxon society. So basically, over time, as these two cultures are sort of bumping up against one another and beginning to intermesh, there was a financial um, incentive to join for the natives to join into this society. So over time, the natives, natives basically in mass convert into uh, Anglo-Saxon society. Because not only was it financially beneficial, this Vergild, but also the Angles and the Saxons offered protection. They were a sort of tribal society, but they had tightly knit kinship groups. So this is basically the beginnings of like the tribal and kings that we are going to see uh, in a little bit. Just understand that they had really tight uh, kin groups that the natives eventually found themselves uh, intermixed with. So the natives would have granted the land to the Angles and the Saxons as part of this assimilation. This is the beginnings of the relationship to the land that we want to talk about. Remember, Jared just mentioned the Latifundia. This is an evolution of this kind of relationship to the land. And I don't want to use the term ownership, like quote unquote ownership yet, but uh, we'll get there. So the natives would have allowed the Angles and the Saxons um, rule over their land mostly for protection. And we have to understand that this is mostly, and I use mostly here in like air quotes, a voluntary action. 
The natives would have granted the land in exchange for having rights to a Vergild, again, this sort of life insurance and protection from the warrior class of the Angles and the Saxons. And they would pay a small duty to the Lord. So they're beginning to pay taxes. Um, but it's important to understand that at this point in time, they were free to leave the land at any point. This is why I kind of use the term voluntary even though we question how much it was actually voluntary, because even though they were free to leave, the question remains, like, where would you go? You really had no other option. Uh, like, you weren't going to, like, you know what, I'm going to go resettle in this er other area on the other side of the world, like many people could do today. That's not a thing if you're a native living on the islands uh, at the time. So we use the term voluntary, but, like, loosely voluntary as much as absolutely possible. This time is defined by basically the mightiest had the right to rule. So the best warriors would have the most land. And that's how essentially the Angles and the Saxons decided who would have the land and where, whoever was the strongest at fighting. Um, the earliest record suggests that there were about 35 Anglo-Saxon tribes around the time that they settled Britain, so the early 400s. Over time, as these tribes are fighting with one another, by the end of the 6th century, um, there are six main tribes that remain. The only one we're going to be focused on is the tribe of Kent, because it ends up basically winning out and becoming the one tribe that uh, we're going to follow its lineage, which will lead us all the way up into divine right. Not that we're going to go through every single, like, the bloodline, but you get the idea. Just know that the tribe of Kent, of the six that mainly were left by the end of the sixth century, Kent is the one that essentially uh, uh, wins out. So I want to pause for a second and talk a little bit about sort of the spread of knowledge and education at this time. Um, Jared actually mentioned it last time in the last episode of what that looked like under the Roman Empire. So if you're interested in those specifics, uh, you can go back and listen to that episode. But just know that they had systems of spreading knowledge and education. And as Jared mentions in the last one, their scholars were largely Greek uh, for interesting reasons that you can listen to that episode and get that. Um, when the... Roman Empire abandons Britain, they basically take the education institution with them, and they definitely take the church with them. Um, the people that are left, the natives, and then after that, the Angles and the Saxons, basically want nothing to do with what was left over from the Roman civilization, because as Jared mentions in the last episode, and if you know anything about the Roman Empire, the Romans were straight assholes. Um, so when they leave, you basically don't want any holdover. You want nothing to do with uh, what they were about. So education essentially doesn't exist during this period uh, throughout Britain. There's no formal education system at all. And like I said, it was basically through fighting, like physical battles, that people won right over land and other wealth. Um, this is partially why this period is called the quote-unquote Dark Ages. It's between the, the, the Roman Empire and uh, later periods, which we'll get to in later episodes. But education is largely gone. Can this we say that this might be one of the – at least a, like a, a, a little bit of DNA um, traced back all the way to this time period, especially in English and later, of course, American culture of our reverence of, uh, of brawn over brains? Oh, yeah, 100%. Fully. Interesting. It's That's interesting that that discourse still exists to this day somehow – 
might equals right yeah, or exactly. whatever. Um, yeah, it's interesting. There were a couple of educators like floating through at the time, but they were only educating to try and get converts back to the church. This, of course, is where you get the very famous story of St. Patrick and his journey through the Isles, ending up in Ireland. That was around 432. Another St. Columba ends up uh, attempting to convert the Picts in 563. Um, but all of these groups, when they convert, quote-unquote, this is what makes it unique and a little bit different than like Roman variants of Christianity is they synthesize their pagan values and culture and tradition into these new versions of, of, of Christianity. Essentially, they still call themselves Catholic in air quotes, of course, but like their own traditions are woven into them. So like in this case, the Celts version of Catholicism would be slightly different than the Italian version of Catholicism, etc. because of those cultural values. Anyway, I, I don't want to break this up too far, but yeah. Yeah. So this all changes in Britain in 597. But before we go to that, we're going to switch gears and go back to uh, the mainland for Jared for just a second. Just going back to the, the mainland, we also have the rise of another group of, at one point, both indigenous and migratory people collectively now known as the Franks. Again, that's well overly simplistic. Again, when we talk about like, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of migratory patterns intermingling, um, there is no such thing as a pure ethnicity or pure race. But just like with Nick, for simplicity sur for purposes, we're going to just call this group of people the Franks. And they eventually coalesce around a great leader uh, around 485 named Clovis. He overthrows one of the other rival groups, the Visigoths in Gaul, which is now modern-day France. He actually has a little Roman help at the time. And, and, and Roman, you have, to be, you have to understand, like Western Rome still thinks it exists, and there's still an emperor in the east who is consolidating power there. So he has like some Roman mercenaries that help him establish a Merovingian lineage that merges Germanic tradition, uh, Roman values, and Christian values together. So again, that's what this kind of Merovingian lineage is that, that, that rises in what we would now call France. He himself converts to Catholicism in 496. He begins to construct what would we eventually what we would eventually call the feudal estate society um, on the lands of the Latifundia from the Roman Empire. And he delegates three different, and this is where the position comes from, mayors of three different regions: Burgundy, Neustri, and Austrasia. Um, and and we're starting to see like the establishment of a new kind of let me put this – how do I put this? Again, a synthesis just like we talk about with the cults of traditional culture with what's left over or what people learn from Rome that they want to co-opt or use. And then, of course, the rise in a universal religion, this idea of one truth. We even talked about this in the Zoroastrian episode. This is how you kind of forcefully unite people. Um, and maybe it's for good reasons. Maybe it's for bad reasons. But if you can – like, again – put them in under the the rule of essentially one narrative, one truth, a linear way of looking at the world, this is a way to create unity. And that was what some people would argue was missing during this time after the the pretty much the material collapse of the Western Roman Empire. And so Clovis is really known for that. Um, we're going to pick back up with some of Clovis's, Clovis's lineage, but to keep like, again, in this linear time timeline that we're following, to keep with the time, I want to kick it back to Nick uh, to pick up with uh, Augustine. Okay, so we are back uh, in Britain and back uh, focusing on the tribe of Kent. And now we can get to one specific person, King uh, of Kent, King Aethelbert. 
Um, so he is ruling, and like I said, this period that we're talking about is 597 specifically this year, but let's recap just so we know what's going on. Rome left. The Angles and the Saxons moved in. Their tribes competed until Kent was the most dominant tribe, and Aethelbert is the king of Kent at this period. So basically he's the king of all of the land because they are now the most dominant tribe. Like I said, the Romans left. They took Christianity with them, the formal church at least. But the Angles and the Saxons are largely pagan. Some of the natives have continued their Christian beliefs that are left over from Roman times, but the church as an institution does not exist anymore. So religion basically is just like individual faith at this point. Like Jared said, there's some traveling like educators, which are largely religious, traveling through, but this institution doesn't exist. The year that is the turning point here, like I said, is 597. In 597, Pope Gregory the Great sends Augustine to Britain to try to convert Aethelbert, the king at this point, to Christianity. Aethelbert allows Augustine to settle in Canterbury, and then over the course of the next few years, no one exactly knows like when or how, Aethelbert converts to Christianity. Some people actually argue that he was already Christian, that um, Augustine just sort of formalizes and brings him into the institution of Christianity. It doesn't really matter. Aethelbert first is kind of standoffish. He agrees to let Augustine basically hang out. And then over time, um, he converts to full-blown like institutional Christianity. Once the king converts, then the church is free to evangelize evangelize throughout all of Britain. So they basically at this point then have free reign uh, because they're endorsed by the king and he himself believes. So Augustine, over the next few years, forms a network of school and churches in order to spread the teachings of the church. So this is basically like the return of formal institutional spreading of knowledge, but under the auspices of spreading religion. So this is how this sort of returns to Britain after it leaves with the exiting of the Roman Empire. So it's fully religious. Um, So education becomes common again, though it's still mostly for the elite like none of the lower people are learning anything uh, formally, except at least. And they spread this through like the common iconography, even some of it dating back to like Rome, like the the great Chi Rho Iota symbol that Constantine used to use and emblazon on like the shields of his soldiers. This was one of like one of the first earliest Christian monograms that again eventually made its way all the way from like Byzantium to of course these English Isles, and it became emblazoned everywhere. Um, it became a symbol of this like newfound um, need to. Well, it actually synthesizes this a the newfound knowledge or the resurrection of knowledge with this kind of warrior spirit um so that chi rose important also uh narrative narrative makes its way to the isles the lindisfarne gospels one of the more famous sets of gospels that take place that help christianize almost the entire british isles these are the things that a lot of the the educators that's what they're spreading during this time period um throughout the british isles so it's it's interesting and again the synthesis isn't overnight a lot of it, I mean, even in the Gospels, you can see like a lot of like the more animal style that you would expect from more pagan groups is still in a lot of these early Christian like illuminated manuscripts. And if you have, we're Nick and myself are certainly not religious by any stretch of the imagination, but one can't help but look at some of these illuminated manuscripts and say, man, that that that's an amazing piece of art. And if if we think that, we have to imagine people with very limited access to a whole bunch of like you know. Uh, iconography would think the same thing as well. So it is. It's a spread. It's a spread through conflict, but also education. So like Jared said, this isn't overnight. Over a matter of decades, Christianity becomes the dominant faith throughout Britain. um, And basically... 
pagan beliefs and this sort of informal Christian beliefs go by the wayside. That's obviously not like they don't, they're not completely eliminated, but by far Christianity now becomes the dominant uh, belief structure, this one truth, this idea that we've been talking about through the past uh, couple of episodes. It becomes the way of life, the moral code, the socializing agent, and over this time, the church becomes an incredible landowner in itself. It itself becomes a rigid institution with its own laws, etc., that it's basically are still left over from the Roman Empire. Um, and it becomes intertwined with the government, which we'll be talking about uh, later on in a few minutes. But most importantly, for the sake of this conversation about how knowledge is spread and ideology, the church is the only educational institution in society throughout Britain at this time. Yes, people are still learning informal knowledge like how to plow the fields and etc. But all formal knowledge is being delivered through the church under the Christian faith. And this continues for the better part of five centuries in Britain, basically this situation, uh, until uh, like the early, well, we'll, t- we'll get there in a second. I want to go back to Jared for a little bit to take us to the mainland to fill in some of that time of what's going on uh, across the sea. And again, historians, we apologize for kind of coming at this almost, you know, like as quickly as possible. But our goal in this episode is actually to talk ideology. So this history is mainly just serving as like a timeline and a backstory. Um, picking up back on the mainland, we are also going to fast forward a few centuries and pick up with one of these very famous mayors. Um, again, Clovis is the one that kind of sets this system up. We're now about a, I don't know, couple of centuries away. And I want to pick up with the mayor known as Charles Martel, who in 732, uh, essentially wins one of the more important battles in perhaps all of European history. He beats, uh, he defeats the uh, a second Umayyad Khalif's advance from out of Spain across the Pyrenees into France. It's known as the Battle of Poitiers in 732. Um, it is an important battle. I'm not sure if, you know, I'm not, I don't want to necessarily load that with any sort of positive or negative um, connotation. Perhaps that Umayyad advance would have saved uh, much of Europe from the, uh, the Dark Ages. Uh, they were definitely a much more advanced civilization. But regardless, Charles wins this battle, gets this really cool nickname known as the Hammer. He puts on really flashy pants and dances fast. No, he doesn't do any of that, but he was too legit to quit. <laughs> um, regardless, the Hammer, Charles Martel, Dan, after winning this battle, takes from the he essentially begins to start taking from the church. He has so much now clout, so to speak, that he starts taking from the church. He doesn't. He's not Robin Hood, though. He's not giving some of their investments to the poor. He gives it to other wealthy landowners to help prop up, so that they give their voice for his now newfound authority. So he is. I don't even know what you call that. It's definitely not a Robin Hood. What would you call Charles Martel? Take take from the church and you're like, oh, yeah, he's going to give it to the poor for real now. No, nope. he gives it to other rich people to basically back him in his rise to prominence. Right, yeah. yeah. Thief? I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, Charles Martel uh, takes this to the next level and eventually is able to garner a certain amount of authority, though not enough authority where we would ever, at least in my opinion, call him like a legit emperor or king along those lines. But he is like the one that ushers in something very important in Frankish history. It's known as the Carolingian dynasty. Um, Eventually, uh, he passes away. And as we know in Europe, because of uh, uh, bloodline, his son eventually rises to prominence as well. He has a couple of sons, but in this case, we're going to talk about Pepin the Short. That's a dope name. Yeah, I really enjoy that name, Pepin. I just it's a it's a great name. Anyway, I'm picturing like this like little mousy like guy, but whatever. Anyway, Pepin the Short is named the Frankish king. 
he is uh, essentially granted authority over much of like Western Europe when he crushes crushes an invasion of gr- by a group of people known as the Lombards in northern Italy. This is an important point in Western European history in that now they will no longer basically have to call their emperor because they're technically they're still under the emperor of Byzantium in Constantinople. They will no longer now look to that emperor to save them from whatever ails them, whatever it might be. They now begin to look to Frankish kings instead. They have now garnered enough clout, material resources, um, and to basically take over uh, uh, the role of protecting the Western Roman church. So essentially, this is the beginning of a schism. It is not the full-blown version of the schism. Again, historians might be sitting at home like grinding or gnashing their teeth that the schism is much more complex than it is. This, it absolutely is. There's an iconoclast controversy, a whole host of other things that we probably should talk about. But again, we're just trying to get to the ideology right now. And in this case, part of the schism is that the church will now be looking to Frankish kings as their protectorate rather than the Byzantines. After Pepin the Short uh, passes away, we have another change, uh, changing of the guard, and now we get one of the most popular European rulers of all time. Uh, Charles the Great rises to prominence between 768 and 814. And of course, we know in in, at least middle-aged French, it's not Charles the Great he goes by, but Charlemagne. This very uh, proud, politically savvy, often violent leader eventually uh, picks up where his predecessors left off, both his father and his grandfather, and continues to conquer vast amounts of territory. He merged everyone under, and he himself was raised, uh, a Catholic himself, under the Nicene Creed and this idea of Trinitarian universal Christianity, better known as Catholicism. And also synthesize these traditional, uh, again, Catholic values with Franco-Roman values. His expansion was eventually checked by the aforementioned uh, second Umayyad Khalif in Spain um, as he is soundly whipped at a battle known as the Battle of Roncis Valley in 778. So he doesn't have the same military success uh, in defeating the the Muslims as uh, uh, his grandfather, Charles Martel. But it's at this point where uh, we get to learn a little bit about manufacturing propaganda. Um, after he loses this battle, uh, well, actually, during this whole time, he creates a capital back in, again, modern-day France at the city of Aachen, um, which is erected uh, more or less to pay homage to his holy rule. The papacy also begins to um, need a little bit more legitima- legitimacy and protection, so they basically fabricate a new... Uh, title, a new title dating back to what they would say was Roman. It's called the Donation of Constantine, and of course they're 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 resurrecting the name of an emperor that at this point has been dead for about four centuries. And this Donation of Constantine is this new thing that the Church gets to gets to give away. It's a title. The Pope uh, essentially gets to rule by the mandate. He is the mandate of the great Roman emperor. This is important because it doesn't happen, and Nick's going to flip this here in a minute. But regardless at least on the continent, for a brief period of time, this emperor, the, the, the king, Charlemagne, is so great that essentially the pope is only ruling because of the king's mandate. 
Pope Leo III is eventually forced into exile under Charlemagne's protection, and this is where that donation takes place. Now, what happened while the Pope is under Charlemagne's protection and how this donation is eventually given, obviously that can be left up to conjecture at this point in time. Charlemagne eventually, though, uh, wins enough battles that he's able to lead the Pope back to Rome, where on Christmas of 800, Pope Leo III officially named Charlemagne the Holy Roman emperor. So here in the year 800, we have the establishment of a new quote-unquote state, the Holy Roman Empire, because it now has an emperor. Pope Leo here is clearly, and Charlemagne as well, are clearly hearkening back to some sort of past grandiose notion. What does the Holy Roman Emperor mean? What does that mean? What are you trying to do when you basically make this title? Because let me be blunt, this empire would not be holy, nor would it be Roman, nor would it ever really even be an empire. It's basically fractured kingdoms for most of its existence. It's, it's, it's 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 merely i mean it's hollow it's a husk of what the former roman empire used to be i mean it's this thing that we've been talking about through the last few episodes of retroactively sort of creating an origin story that allows you to basically make use of the influence of past in this case empires and narratives and so on and apply them to what's going on currently to sort of give you some legitimacy. Yeah, so many people confuse Roman Empire with Holy Roman Empire and I think that was honestly a Pope Leo's intent. Oh yeah, for that was sure. their he intention like on yeah. That. Yeah. yeah, they are not the same. They are not remotely the same. I guess the, geographically they're they 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 they're from the same area, but no, they they're not the same. But what this does is it also establishes the Pope now, it reverses it again, the Pope as Emperor Maker, which is essentially a giant middle finger to the Byzantines and their emperor. Essentially, this is what's going to happen, and this is where the schism becomes even more, like, defined, is the Pope is now basically naming emperors for this new cool thing, and it's almost like a rival emperor to the Byzantines. Again, I must stress this to you listeners, this Western version, this this conglomerate weak whatever we want to call it, like church, land of estate, pope relationship, cannot hold a candle to the Byzantine Empire in just about any capacity. But they really want to feel like they can. This is like the person that, like, whatever, throws a turbo in a really crappy car because they saw somebody in a Corvette <laughs> or something like that. Like, it's that's what this is. You're going with the Corvette? As the God, example. I hate Corvettes. I can't believe I just... <laughs> American cars are shit, y'all. They really are. I should have said something like, I don't know, an R34, whatever, Skyline. Back to the story, though. One of the cool like primary sources from this time that a lot of you will be familiar with is how some of this 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 general notion ends up idealized. And one of the most famous stories of the time is the very famous story of the Song of Roland that essentially uh, basically talks about this amazing king, this amazing emperor Charlemagne and what he's able to accomplish. Um, I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that he had actually lost uh, one of the major battles at Roncesvalles Valley to the Umayyad Caliph. And again, if you are a a Catholic warrior losing to the Muslims was like a big no-no. We all know that the Muslims at this point in time were superior fighters, superior intellectually. Like, so that's not necessarily bad on Charlemagne. That was a battle he was expected to lose. In fact, it was the battle that his grandfather won that was like the super surprise where the underdog actually won. Uh, the Islamic world was exponentially more advanced than the Western European world at this point in time. But he can't deal with that. Charlemagne's pride and his ego, he can't deal with that. And so eventually this song is commissioned, this Song of Roland, which is propaganda. It essentially argues in the song, because no one's going to fact check him in the 8th century here, that he won these battles, that he was winning hearts and minds throughout Spain. So much so that he eventually comes to a, a Muslim king uh, named Marsali, and Marsali eventually takes his counsel and 
the line verbatim says this, Lords, you shall go hence. Olive branches you shall carry in your hands. And of Charlemagne the king, you shall beg on my behalf that for the sake of his God, he have mercy on me. Tell him that I will follow him a thousand of my faithful vassals before he sees this first month pass and that I will receive the Christian law and become his man in love and loyalty. If he desire hostages, he shall have them in truth. Blantcrin said, you will have a very good treaty. So essentially this, this paints like all the Muslim kings of the time in Spain or Muslim, they wouldn't even be kings, right? They fall under the caliph, but basically the emirs, the governors as just basically begging, begging Charlemagne, like, don't kick our ass, man. Here's some tributes. Uh, Here's some hostages, and we will convert to Christianity. It's a lie. That did not happen in Spain at all. In fact, we actually have records where Charlemagne was paying tributes to the main caliph all the way in Baghdad, Harun al-Rashid, and in return got a couple of cool gifts like elephants and stuff like that. But it is important that we know that the man's a liar. Now, it doesn't mean he's actually a bad leader. We would argue he briefly, through some other other things, is able to bring um, um, mainland Europe briefly out of its dark age. There's actually a little mini renaissance here before we get to a major renaissance, you know, centuries down the road. It's called the Carolingian Renaissance. And uh, as much as I want to pick on Charlemagne, we also have to give him credit for this. This, Char- this Carolingian Renaissance lasts between about 790 and uh, essentially uh, 900. It is basically his way of reinvigorating the reinvigorating the faith and faith in him as well as faith in the church through literacy and a classical education. This might be where a little bit of that Roman comes back in the Holy Roman Empire, this classical education. Some of the very uh, uh, famous schools would be established to promote the liberal hearts. They'd show up in Orleans, Lyon, Mainz, Tours, uh, and excuse my French, and uh, yeah, those are the main cities that these schools end up um, being built in. He also decides he's going to spread the gospel, of course, in Latin. Again, this is paying homage back to, of course, the Roman part of the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, And we have the institution or the institute of the Carolingian minuscule created. This is important because this is basically... Those of you that have seen some of our other episodes or other videos know that there is a general pyramid structure that we like to uh, uh, reference when we're talking about how societies are created, where you have leadership at the top, and the leaders are often co- uh, are able to co-opt a group of people called storytellers, or in, in some cases not even co-opt them, create them to manufacture narratives. Well, that's what these people would eventually begin to do. They uh, they Their whole goal was illuminating these uh, manuscripts to spread the narrative of of. Charlemagne and his Carolingian Renaissance. Um, We also see them end up showing up in monasteries, and monasteries became centers of, of, I don't want to say the arts, like as we would know them fully in the classical era, but like of basically these monasteries became the education centers, and anything that sprang forth from the monasteries is what you would learn. This is how, of course, we get back to this idea of one truth. If all knowledge is springing forth from or from without the mon- or from the monasteries out into the world, what narrative are we learning? We're clearly learning the Car- uh, the Carolingian Catholic uh, uh, narrative. This is where eventually uh, under uh, under Charlemagne and his descendants that we see a a rise not just in the monasteries but of a certain type of landed estate system that will commonly be known as feudalism. Now, I want to talk about the synthesis of feudal, or I want us to talk about the synthesis between feudalism, um, education, and control of the church 
or, again, these holy Roman emperors. But I think it's better, the better example that we can, we can look at for this that will give us, that'll get us to divine right a little bit quicker, uh, can be found across the English Channel in England. So I'm going to let Nick pick up here on how this actually takes, takes place after, uh, long after the death of Charlemagne with the rise of a new leader who actually is able to kind of connect uh, literally across the English Channel. He comes from Normandy, kind of connects some of these stories. So that's where we're going to pick up now. What do you got, Nick? All right. So back in England, we're going to talk about William the Conqueror and the Norman Conquest. So Norman and French forces under the rule of William conquer England in 1066. So now we're in the 11th century. And uh, I guess William does what he does best, and he conquers the (laughs) entire thing. Uh, So this basically is the demarcation of the end of Anglo-Saxon rule in Britain. So like I said before... Uh, it existed for about 500 years with the church being like like what I talked about with Kent of Ethelbert, et cetera. The leaders change over time very clearly and so on. Um, and I'm sure someone that's an expert on this period of history is like so mad at me for glossing over this right now. But it's unchanged basically until William the Conqueror comes in and the Norman Conquest, like I said, in 1066. He rewards all of those who help him uh, in the conquest with land. So he basically takes control of the land and splits it up among his, uh, I guess I'll use the term, soldiers. It's important, though, that one of the first things he does when he takes control is he calls for a survey of the land. And this is now famous. It still exists, this book, and it's called the Doomsday Book. And it essentially is what I, it's like a census, basically. You can think of it as a uh, sort of primitive version of a census. But it documents all of the land, all of the cattle, all of the, essentially, he's trying to get a list of the assets uh, in this territory that he has just conquered. And then he uses that to divide up those assets. And like I said, he divides them up basically among uh, his soldiers, his allies that have helped him with this conquest. Um, And this all takes place within the first 10 years uh, after the conquest is successful. So he takes control of all the land and divvies it up as he sees fit. Um, And within that first decade, All of the leadership positions and all of the land is in control of William and his men. Then the next thing that is immensely crucial for our conversation of ideology is he also takes control of the Catholic Church in England, which we saw uh, is now a powerhouse of social control. It is the hub of knowledge throughout the entire land. He takes control of this as well. Like Jared said, we really want to focus on William the Conqueror and his connection to what becomes feudalism. Um, Feudalism is basically a form of non-free serfdom. So like we talked about under the Angles and the Saxons, it was quote-unquote voluntary. You could leave at any time if you actually wanted to. Under William the Conqueror, that is no longer the case. So this is kind of what it looks like. Um, Like I said, his soldiers, knights in this case, were granted land in exchange for their military service. The key here is that they receive the land in exchange for something. This is much different than the uh, Angles and Saxons' relationship to the land. The knights actually had to do something to earn their land. Now, if you know anything about this time period or what it was like to be a knight, this was not easy work. Um, In fact, you were often gone for long periods of time out on conquests. Um, So you Even if you had a lot of land, you certainly weren't working the land yourself. So what happened? Well, the most successful knights uh, with the most land would grant portions of their lands to other knights in exchange for their service. So the original knights that originally had the land 
wouldn't actually have to fight at all. They would just say, hey, other knight, you can have this portion of my land if you go fight in my place. So they basically were doing nothing anymore, um, and they certainly weren't working the land on uh, their own. So this kind of just creates this chain of duty and service owed to the ultimate landlord. In fact, this is where this term comes from, lord, landlord, um, who is controlling the land. And this happens until everyone is someone's lord and everyone is someone's vassal until the very bottom of the ladder and all the way up until the top of the pyramid, like we've been talking about, uh, so on. So everyone owed their lord some type of service. This was the key difference. You were no longer allowed to voluntarily leave your land because now you owed something for that land. In the simplest example, the serf at the bottom of the pyramid owed service of working that land to the lord that controlled the land. So they were no longer free to just voluntarily leave. And it was required that they work the land because this is how the lord survived. Like I said, they weren't working the land themselves. They're no longer even fighting as knights. They essentially do nothing. Um, now, of course, they wouldn't say that, but they need the serf to work the land because that's how they survive. That's how they get what they need to literally eat. Um, so they can't have the serfs just uh, leaving at any time. This is now the beginnings of formalized feudalism. And just an example of what this looks like uh, from this time period, they have the Oath of Fidelity, which was a Pledge of Allegiance or... Uh, God, gross. Yeah, a pledge of allegiance given to the Lord in front of witnesses. There's no written documents at this time, uh, at least no like legal records of this happening um, because it was far too common. Did they make them do it in schools? Yeah. So you would give this oath of fidelity to your Lord in front of witnesses, and this was basically the seal of this Lord and vassal relationship. So here, I'll just read uh, an excerpt from this. By the Lord before whom the sanctuary is holy, I will to be true and faithful and love all which he loves and shun all which he shuns, according to the laws of God and the order of the world. Nor will I ever, with will or action, through word or deed, do anything which is unpleasing to him, on condition that he will hold to me as I shall deserve it, and that he will perform everything as it was in our agreement when I submitted myself to him and chose uh, his will. So this is the beginning of formalized feudalism, at least in England. Um, all right, going back to Jared now until we come back and pick up later on with other events that happen on the islands. So back to the continent, and I'll actually dabble in the islands for a second as well uh, using one of the stories from there. But back to the, the continent, slowly but surely what we see happening, again, in, the, in Western Europe, where the Holy Roman Emperor is basically holding serve, um, we see slowly but surely – lay kings uh, or lay governors or lay, lay mayors or lay landowners slowly but surely consolidating their power um, in certain ways that began to also um, aggravate the church. This is important because for uh, – as we talked about with Charlemagne as a good example, like they were synthesized. They were working together to basically, again, garner and reassert control over this region, especially over the people. And when I say over the people, we don't just mean their bodies. We mean their minds as well. Um, the Carolingian Renaissance, again, has a – if we talk about it, it expires in about the 10th century. So we're picking up well after that. We're back into another version of quote-unquote dark age. And slowly but surely, the Holy Roman, Roman emperors have become a little bit less Frankish and becoming more Germanic now. Uh, more Germanic ethnicity or blood or whatever is making their way into these, uh, into basically the position of emperor. 
They're becoming power. We have a series of kings known as the Etonian kings. Um, and with that, they are starting to grow their authority. And in this case, at the expense of the church. And one way they decide that they're going to do this to basically rationalize their rule over people, this really picks up in about 1073 through 1078, they decide they're going to start uh, essentially naming their church leaders in their localities. This is a big issue because this, again, presents this idea of who should have the final say-so in the construction of knowledge in a society. Should it be lay leadership, i.e. kings, lords, emperors, whatever, barons, mayors, or should it be church leaders? Well, of course, those who construct knowledge, as we ta- as I talked about a few minutes ago, in these are the storytelling class, and they can dictate curricula, for lack of a better term, to whose loyalty all of us uh, unwashed masses or peons should we should owe our loyalty to. That's, that's what they get to dictate for us. So in this case, um, this is a major debate. It's known as the investiture controversy. Who deserves to have or create investiture, basically putting power of land in the name of God? Should it be lay leadership or should it be ecclesiastical? Well, canon law dictated it should be bishops, local bishops that name, of course, church leader, priests, or whoever it might be. But these holy Roman emperors and their underlings slowly but surely started to take that. They started to name their church leaders. So it would not be necessarily coincidental coincidental if sermons or even like church resources were reoriented to give more loyalty to the king than to the pope. And this leads to a firm break. That's the controversy. Eventually we get, um, in uh, uh, picking up again in 1078, a firm schism between Pope Gregory VII and a Holy Roman Emperor known as Henry IV. Both and the Pope and Henry can't necessarily reconcile on any level uh, that might uh, basically resynthesize temporal and ecclesiastical power. Henry and uh, his underlings eventually call for Pope Gregory to abdicate his office in 1076. The Pope responds, as you might imagine, by excommunicating Henry as well as the Italian diocese. Henry eventually tries in 1077 to find, to seek forgiveness with the Pope. Like, I'm sorry, baby. Like, I didn't mean what I said. Like, will you take me back? But eventually, because he can't stop, uh, again, apparently naming church leaders, he is excommunicated again in 1080. Pope Gregory then officially had prohibited any sort of lay investiture in 1077 at the Council of Aton in France. Many eventually turn against Henry IV during this time, and when I say many, both leadership and, again, the regular like people still, for some reason, find more comfort in the Pope, in Pope Gregory's actions, than they do in Henry's. A civil war in the Holy Roman Empire ensues, where all the papacy-loyal princes eventually adopt an anti-king. His name is Rudolf of Rheinfelden, and then Henry adopts an anti-pope uh, named Clement III. Essentially, so you have a pope and an anti-pope, and a king and an anti-king in Western Europe at this time, as they're basically hashing this out. The controversy continues throughout the Crusades, um, which again, they deserve their own entire episode, but the Crusades are taking place at this time. Honestly, the Crusades in a way kind of help simmer things down at least in terms of violence a little bit because a lot of the knights that were engaged in combat end up going uh, on the Crusades. So it basically calms things down. The Crusades kind of happen at a perfect time to, to help out with this investiture controversy. 
finally, as I fast forward through some of the the other like kings, anti kings, and popes and anti popes, we have under Pope Calixtus the uh, Second a contract of Verms that is basically made in 1122. This new concordat is eventually ratified by the Lateran Council of 
he can marry off his daughter Mary and hope that she has a grandson before he dies. That's unlikely, though, because at this point in time, this is 1525 we're talking about specifically, Mary is eight or nine years old. So the fact that she could have uh, a grandson before Henry dies, he's 34 years old at this point, if you care, uh, is pretty unlikely. It's not impossible, but it's risky. Um or he could attempt to have his marriage to Catherine annulled so that he could remarry and hopefully produce a male heir with his new wife. He chooses option number three. Um, so he attempts to have his marriage annulled. However, at this point, the Pope, the Roman Catholic Church, has to approve the annulment of any king's marriage. So he goes to the Pope and he's like, hey, dude, I need a son. She's not providing me with one. Can you annul this marriage? Obviously, that's not how the conversation went down, but you get the idea. Um, the Pope says, absolutely not. I am not going to approve this. Henry gets pissed. So pissed that he breaks with the Catholic Church, and he essentially forms his own church. Um, this is the birth of the Church of England. And this becomes formalized in 1534 with the Act of Supremacy. And in this Act of Supremacy, which I'll read a quote from in a second, Henry officially becomes the supreme head of the Church of England. So he breaks from the Roman Catholic Church, starts specifically the Church of England, and becomes its head. So here's just an excerpt from the Act of Supremacy. Albeit the king's majesty justly and rightfully is and ought to be the supreme head of the Church of England and is so recognized by the clergy of the realm in their convocations. Yet nevertheless, for corroboration and confirmation thereof and for increase in virtue in Christ's region within the realm of England, blah, blah, blah. It continues. It's really long. I'm just going to read that uh, part. You get the idea. So this formal act by Henry creates the church and appoints him as the head. It's important to note that for Henry himself, this is much more just a political move and a personal move than it ha is to have anything to do with, like, theology. He still persecutes Protestants and Roman Catholics uh, during his rule. So he basically doesn't take any sides there. He's just doing this so that he can have his marriage annulled. That changes later on, but we'll get to that in a second. Under this, immediately, Henry orders the dissolution of nearly all monasteries, which Jared was talking about, and takes control of all church property and assets, which if you remember just a few minutes ago, I talked about how the church had become an incredible landowner uh, in the previous centuries. Henry takes control above uh, all of that. Now, the reason this is such an important point is because at this point, this marks the consolidation of the political ruler, the king, and the church as the ultimate authority. Now, no longer does the church have any say-so in like the, divine, the king's right to rule and so on. Now, the king is not just the king. The king is also the church. So this is the synthesis of these two things under Henry VIII. Now, like I just mentioned, he didn't actually do it for political, like for theological reasons, or even really for political power. He legit just wants a son and needs his marriage to be annulled for that to happen. Um, then Henry has a history like that continues after that uh, with many wives. He ends up with six of them uh, and whatever. It's interesting. Historians now point to like very clearly it was Henry's problem because none of these women, they all struggled to provide him with a son. So it actually had nothing to do with the women. It was Henry himself that was the problem. But, you know, in classic King's arrogance, of course, he's never going to realize or admit to that uh, at the time. But historians now say like clearly it was Henry's problem. Uh, so that's just an aside, but just massive, know that massive patriarchs yeah. have, have like confidence issues. Who Weird. Knew? Who, Who, knew? Who yeah. knew? Who knew we were overcompensating? 
I mean, you create an entire church as a result of this and break with the... Ca- so, right. yeah. 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 Like, uh, that's, that's a big a, deal. A whole church. That's better than like a giant pickup truck than, yeah. and with big tires. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's, he, went, yeah. he went above and beyond. Yeah. Massive <laughs> balls hanging from like, in the church tower. <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> okay. Fast forwarding a little bit to the next ruler when Henry dies is King Edward VI. This is his son. I don't have written down here who uh, his mother was. It's not. It doesn't. It was one of Henry's six wives. Um, so Henry dies. His son is crowned at the age of nine years old. Um, he. It, it's his story is actually kind of interesting because even though he's so young, he's actually interested in like religion, and so he does a lot of things during his short rule um, that are related to this English Reformation and kind of solidify it a little bit. So it, that's interesting. I'm not going to talk about him a lot. He dies when he's 15 years old in 1533. So he only rules for six years, nine to 15. Uh, so he's like the teenage king, basically. Um, after he dies, Lady Jane Grey is the de facto queen for nine days uh, before she's deposed. So she's basically uh, inconsequential in our conversation. Mary I then uh, takes over. She is the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, who is Henry VIII's uh, Oh, and Henry VIII, which is Edward's half-sister. So he's the half-sister of Edward VI. None of this is important. I'm just going through this history really quickly so we can get to uh, King James, which is who I really want to talk about. Um, She becomes queen in 1553. She is a devout Roman Catholic and attempts to undo as much as she possibly can of the English Reformation. So she tries to undo basically her father's um, policies. She repeals the 1534 Act of Supremacy, and she tries to return the property to the church that her father had taken control of, as much as she uh, can. Uh, During her reign, Protestants are persecuted uh, severely. It's estimated that uh, 300 of them were burned at the stake. In fact, she gets the nickname Bloody Mary as a result of her policy of prosecuting Protestants violently. Say it Um, three times. Say it three times. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. One story of the origination of the name of the Bloody Mary cocktail actually links back to her and her nickname. Um, So take that for what it's worth. Just a little bit of trivia there. Okay. Mary dies in 1558, and her half-sister Elizabeth is crowned queen. This is Elizabeth I. She's 25 years old. Elizabeth is a Protestant. So we now see an oscillation here back towards the uh, Protestant uh, perspective. She undoes all of the Catholic actions that her half-sister had just overseen during her rule. And she implements the second act of supremacy in 1558. And I'm going to read an excerpt of that too, because this gives us uh, an interesting sort of conversation piece here. So all public officials, both in the church and in the government throughout all of England at this time, had to take this oath, which is part of uh, the act of supremacy. I do utterly testify and declare in my conscience that the Queen's Highness is the only supreme governor of this realm. And of all other Her Highness's dominions and countries, as well as in all spiritual or ecclesiastical things or causes as temporal, and that no foreign prince, person, prelate, state, or potentate has or ought to have any jurisdiction, blah, blah, blah. It continues on. I always try to read like the first sentence of that, but literally I didn't even make it through the first sentence. The first sentence is like two paragraphs long. Anyways, the point I want to make here is that she is named the Supreme Governor of the Church of England. If you rewind to the 1534 Act of Supremacy with Henry VIII, he was named the Supreme Head of the Church of England. This is a crucial change in terminology. 
She is only granted the right as governor instead of head, who will govern over and sort of administer the Church of England straight up because she's a woman and she is a queen instead of a king. So we now see patriarchy um, playing a role here, which uh, we can't go without mentioning. It's important that since she was a woman, people had a problem with her being the head of the Church of England. So she gets crowned only the supreme governor and not the supreme head. This is actually a compromise that she makes with the Roman Catholic Church. Um, sorry, not with the Roman Catholic Church. Well, yeah, with the Roman Catholic Church to try to kind of quell some of the violence that's going on as a result of the Church of England and the English Reformation. This is basically a compromise that she will be the governor instead of the head, quote unquote. So it's patriarchy and it's a compromise on Elizabeth's part to try to, like I said, quell some of this violence. She also makes a lengthy list of other compromises, but we don't need to talk about that right now. She does continue to do some other things, though. Uh, one of them that's important is the Act of Conformity, which is also in 1558. This is important still to this day for the Church of England because this um, establishes the belief structure essentially of the Church of England, and it's a synthesis of like Protestant, Catholic, and other sort of religious tenets, basically. And this, to this day, is still the religious belief structure of the Church of England. So you might ask yourself, well, who has time to go to church and why would you possibly do this at this time? Well, because Elizabeth, under the Act of Uniformity, also makes it legally required that everyone can attend church at least once per week. So you have to attend church once per week or you were fined at the time 12 pence, which was a significant amount for a serf at the time. So everyone had to go to church, basically, Elizabeth establishes. Okay, before we go on to King James, I want to pause and see if Jared has anything he wants to add um, at this point. I don't have anything to add. I mean, we just spent, you know, a, a long time. I'm not even sure I've timed this this episode at this point. Kind of going through history before we've even gotten into ideology. Um, we felt compelled that a lot of that backstory needed to be be told, um, and we think it'll be helpful. Um, but now I think we do need to make this transition into ideology. I mean, we skipped a whole bunch of things that I, I that came up when you were going through it. Again, we could have gone deeper into like King John um, and Richard and and everything that took place in between, like William and. Um, uh, where did you pick up back again at? I don't remember, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, in between William and Henry. There was a whole lot of – Magna Carta becomes a thing at that point in time, which is the origin eventually of like the English constitution, this like long – centuries old both oral slash written document that is like come together and has a massive impact on the world but i think we do need to kind of keep getting going into the ideological aspect and that's the only thing that i i, I meant i thought of when you were talking about elizabeth the first reforms is how ideological they were like this idea even the catchwords conformity or oaths of allegiance or like i mean I'm going to sound mean right now, but who believes this like just nonsense? But that's the point. That's why we're doing this podcast. We can see that's why we went through the history. This is how those constructs come into being. Both the ideal and material constructs reflexively have this relationship that gets us the unwilling saps just, yeah, okay, I'll pledge my allegiance to some like weird abstract idea that is actually wildly oppressive to my own like liberation or autonomy. Like, ah, anyway, keep going. Which is why I emphasize that brief period in the history and skip like the John, like you said, because it's important. It it illuminates this idea that at the time 
the religion of the land was whatever the religion of the leader happened to be. We see this oscillation between Protestantism and Catholicism and Christianity and so on. Yeah, I totally choose to be a Christian. No, no, you didn't choose. You were indoctrinated. Like, exactly. You don't know any better. You were never given any other option. If you heard, going back to the Song of Roland, of even another religion existing, they're immediately evil. I didn't use any of that language when I read my example of the Song of Roland, but there is some very colorful language that describe people of like Islamic or Jewish faith, right? Like, it's just it's ridiculous yeah and then elizabeth takes it a step further with by just like henry the eighth did using laws to formalize and codify the belief structure of the church of england okay. burning people alive i mean when we're yeah. going back to bloody mary like holy like because of a different narrative you believe a different narrative that's it you Seriously. should die yeah oh okay elizabeth dies like they all do because this is history and she has no heirs, nor in her lifetime did she name the line of succession. So basically, there's sort of controversy of who's going to take over. The reigning king of Scotland is James the Sixth of Scotland. He takes over the throne of England. So he becomes King James the Sixth of Scotland and King James the First of England. Rewinding a little bit, he became the king of Scotland in 1657 when he was 13 months old. If you know anything about what goes down when the king takes over when he's 13 months old, basically a council rules in his stead and he grows up uh, as a young king, but basically with no political duties. Obviously, no 13-month-old is going to do anything um, to that capacity. And so he is raised and educated by a scholar by the name of George Buchanan, who's actually a pretty important uh, figure in this time period, his ideas. George Buchanan wrote extensively on the limitations of the monarchy and the duty of subjects to overthrow and even murder tyrannical kings. So James grows up under the tutelage of George Buchanan with these beliefs. However, James experiences this firsthand when his mother, who had already been forced to abdicate the throne, is executed when James is 20 years old. And James basically does a 180 from all the teachings that his scholar, uh, George Buchanan, would have given him. And he goes the opposite direction as extreme as possible, and which we'll get to his ideas in a second. But just know that his unique upbringing as an incredibly young king, he's highly, highly educated because he's had a traditional, I don't want to use traditional, it still was like highly elitist, but a childhood where he's raised and educated by these philosophers and scholars. Still, they're religious scholars. They're not like Greek or whatever, but you get the idea. Um, at least he has a formal education. He's wicked smart. He's smarter than any king in either direction, probably for centuries. Um, he himself uh, authors books, which I'm going to talk about in a second. But this time period is very interesting because there are many opponents and conflicting claims to supreme authority. First, we have the Catholic Church who still claims that papal supremacy should be the supreme ruling of the land. Then we have the Puritans, who are unsatisfied with the English Reformation and actually think that the break from the Catholic Church wasn't extreme enough, and they still want even more Protestant ideas into the Church of England. So that's basically the two polar sides of this debate. The Catholic Church, who still isn't happy with the break of the Church of England, and then the Protestants who want a more extreme uh, break from the Church of England. So this is kind of the social milieu which King James is coming into when he takes over um, kingship in England. Um, I don't know if I have his age when he actually takes over England and becomes King James I. Uh, okay, 1603. He was born in 1566. 
So he's actually pretty old. He's in his like late 30s at this point when he takes over England. But he had been ruling Scotland for, uh, like I said, since he was 13 months old, for whatever that's worth. Okay. When he becomes an adult king, he sets out to re-legitimize the monarchy's rule over its subjects. And he writes some interesting books. Like I said, he himself um, is a scholar and an intellectual. The first one I want to talk about briefly is called Demonology. He writes this in 1597. This is, it's actually kind of interesting. I never read the whole thing, but he talks about everything from witches to vampires to werewolves. And he's basically talking about other supernatural um, phenomena. And he himself had overseen witch hunts in Scotland when, while he's the king of Scotland. So he's essentially somewhat of an expert kind of on this topic, as much as you can be an expert uh, on these things uh, during this time period. An expert on things that aren't real. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think that work is important when we're going through sort of his like body of work because it's him establishing himself on an authority of things that challenge Christian belief structures, right? These alternative narratives. He's basically saying, I know these things. This book is all about these things. I have overseen their persecution in Scotland. And so he's legitimizing uh, kind of his authority here. That's not probably like why he wrote it. But when we're looking at his body of work and what he stands for, it plays an important part. The next thing is uh, a book he writes titled The True Law of Free Monarchies. Now we're getting into James as a member of the storytelling class or as a member of the culture industry manufacturing narratives to reestablish the legitimacy of essentially divine right of kings as the leaders of the church and of the political sphere. Um, this gets, it, it's written in 1598 and it becomes republished in England in 1603 when he takes over as king of England. Um, just some general themes that we'll talk about. He says, monarchy is divinely ordained. So it has supreme authority. Kings are accountable to God alone, so they are accountable to no human beings, only to God. Hereditary succession governs the monarchy, so kings and their sons and so on. Subjects have no right to resistance. Put a pin in that for a second and we'll come back to it because that's a key topic that we want to discuss uh, during this episode. He writes another book in 1599 titled Basilicon Doron which is Greek for royal gift. So interesting, he's hearkening back to ancient Greek here. Um, it means royal gift. This is a letter he writes in the form of a book to his uh, then five-year-old son, who essentially will take over as king in his mind. Um, this also gets republished in London in 1603 when he becomes a king in London. This one gets widely read by the literate elite. Um, we'll come back to that in a second as well. Then, probably most famously, he oversees the publication, the writing and the publication of the King James Bible. This begins in 1604, and it's finished in 1611. Though it's worth noting, unlike the other three I just mentioned, he doesn't actually write this himself. There is a committee of biblical scholars that uh, oversee the writing of this. It is interesting, though, that this is still, as far as I know, like the most famous translation of the Bible because it's written intentionally by James in sort of common... English uh, at the time so that it could be widely read. I don't want to say that this is like, he's not essentially doing this to like intentionally sort of create this book that will then become 
the belief structure of the people, but that is what happens. And the reason this book is so important is because there were competing different competing versions of the Bible at this time, based on the history we've just given of this conflict, you can imagine. So he wants to really codify and synthesize those into one real, like, one truth, one narrative, right? We've been talking about monotheism this whole time and how it claims to be this one truth. So James, at this point, is motivated to synthesize all of these different competing narratives into one, the King James Bible. Um, and there are some minor changes that he puts in that are actually kind of interesting that give more legitimacy to uh, kingship. Uh, I'm not going to go over those specific ones. You can Google those changes. They're widely available. Uh, but it's just interesting just to know that King James, who believes in absolutism and the rule of the monarchy, writes this Bible that then is still to this day the most commonly used uh, translation Uh so that's kind of interesting. Um, okay, rewinding now to Basilicon Doron. I have a quote here that I want to uh, read. He says, I grant indeed that a wicked king is sent by God for a curse to his people and that a plague for their sins. Okay, so he's saying, yes, a wicked king is sent by God to punish the people. So is the plague. Remember what I just mentioned about the plague. So that's important. Next is what's even more important. But that it is lawful to them to shake off that curse at their own hand, which God hath laid on them, that I deny and may do so justly. This leads us into this incredibly interesting topic, which we will bring up countless times going forward, the stoic subject and passive resistance. And it's born out of this time, specifically out of the works of King James. It's not like it wasn't a thing before, but James specifically tries to legitimize and make this a perversive, perversive, a pervasive idea throughout, uh, under his rule throughout England and the British Empire. Remember, he's the king of Scotland also. The idea of the Stoic subject is that if wicked kings are sent by God, and like the plague, as an example, is sent by God, if wicked kings, if tyrants are sent to rule the people as a punishment from God, the subjects of these kings have no right to fight against the king, because doing so is fighting against the word of God itself. Remember, this marks the consolidation, starting with Henry VIII, of the combination of the church and the king, the political authority and the supreme divine authority. These two things are the same. So by fighting against one, you are fighting against another. By fighting against the king, you are fighting against the church. And thus, by fighting against both, you're fighting against God himself. So King James suggests, in fact, he says, I justly may do so, that the only recourse that the subjects have is to do what, Jared? What do they do? What is a stoic subject? What are they allowed to do according to James's perspective? Lay down. They lay down. They don't actually lay down. They pray. That's what they do. I mean, they pray it's, about it. It's We would say that that's just laying down. Yeah. I mean, the other thing going through my mind is you're kind of telling me this story is, well, you know, listeners, we freely understand that divine right to rule is not an English 
uh, invention that we could trace back to uh, obviously those earliest civilizations with the mandate of heaven in China or the uh, uh, the divine right of the Babylonian or Sumerian or kings of Iraq or whoever, or even uh, when we kind of mock like those first pharaohs like Narmer who has like the rights of Osiris or Isis or Amun-Ra or whatever, like technically like that narrative has has been there. One of the great examples we did in the prior episode was when Caesar Augustus himself like kind of synthesized himself into this like like multi-faceted almost like demigod like there's a cult around him as the emperor so king james isn't necessarily like unique in this capacity but what makes him a little bit unique is how this ideology spreads and how he's able to again specifically ideologically construct it rather than just through like flat out brute force like perhaps an ancient king narmer or even a caesar augustus like yeah they had schooling systems but like the world, to be blunt, is more complicated in the 15 and 1600s, and King James is still able to kind of like weave all of these things together. And and most importantly for you listeners, we'll probably remind you of this at the very end of the episode, which we're coming up on, but James is the king in charge when those first Brits show up in Virginia. So that's why we're focusing on this is it is these ideologies of basically um, compliance, like flat-out compliance that become American hallmarks contrary to popular belief, especially when that compliance is ideologically indoctrinated. That's what we're after here. Yeah, that's the key point, right, which is why we go all the way back to the Angles and the Saxons. Their rule was predicated specifically on brute force. By the time we get all the way to James, like Jared says, this is purely ideological construction. That's why we went through the formalization of the education network under Augustine and Kent of Aethelbert and so on. And, and Clovis's and all that other crap. Like it's, it, it's a process. It, it, it's sometimes in, in prior episodes, like when we talked like agricultural revolution or something like that, like we, we feel like we didn't do like the process justice. We're just like, ah, oh, here's some things. And then we fast forward a couple of thousand years and all of a sudden this is a thing. Well, for this episode, we, we think it deserved some of that nuance. And again, going through the process here. So exactly. So back to this concept of the stoic subject, active resistance is a sin, not just illegal, not just a front to the an affront to the king's authority, but is an affront to the authority of God, and it goes against the very belief structure. So active resistance is out of the question. Rebellion is the same as witchcraft. Remember demonology. It's a sin inspired by the devil and punishable by the same means. This is a whole other level of sort of ideological indoctrination, right? It's not just that you'll be executed if you rebel against the king, which would happen. That's not even it. Now you also will be damned to hell. So it's the consequences for rebelling against the monarchy, now you're under the supreme authority. Now it has even consequences that take place past this life. It's not just that you'll be executed and killed. Now these consequences are eternal. So under the rule of a tyrant, the only real reaction that is allowed is to turn even more strongly to your faith and to pray to God to remove the tyrant and send a more just king to rule over you. Just think about that. And how kind of ridiculous that sounds. I'm going to now read an excerpt from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles. If you know anything about history, you know that these are, it's a primary source from, it spans centuries. We're rewinding now, and I'm going to read from the 1100s, um, just so you can get an idea of how this idea reflects itself in the minds of the quote-unquote peasants, the commoners. So this is one of the rare primary sources we have of the viewpoint of a serf. So this specific excerpt I'm going to read 
it's going to talk about actually the rule of the grandson of William the Conqueror, King Stephen. But I'm going to end with, I want you to pay attention to the last sentence that I read because it's going to kind of sum up this idea of the Stoic subject and who they blame for this activity. So here we go. When King Stephen came to England, he held his council at Oxford, and there he took Roger, Bishop of Salisbury, and Alexander, Bishop of Lincoln, and the Chancellor Roger, his nephews, and put them all in prison until they surrendered their castles. They oppressed the wretched people of the country severely with castle building. When the castles were built, they filled them with devils and wicked men. Then both by night and day they took those people that they thought had any goods, men and women, and put them in prison and tortured them with indescribable torture to extort gold and silver. For no martyrs were ever so tortured as they were. They were hung by the thumbs or by the head, and the corselets were hung on their feet. Knotted ropes were put round their heads and twisted until they penetrated to the brains. They put them in prisons and were adders and snakes and toads and killed them like that. Some they put in a torture chamber, that is in a chest that was short, narrow, and shallow, and they put sharp stones in it and pressed the man in it so that he had all his limbs broken. In many of the castles was a noose and trap consisting of chains of such a kind that two or three men had enough to carry one. It was so made that it was fastened to a beam, and they used to put a sharp iron around the man's throat and his neck, so that he could not in any direction either sit, lie, or sleep, but had to carry all that iron. Many thousands they killed by starvation. I have neither the ability nor the power to tell all the horrors nor all the torments they afflicted upon wretched people in this country. And that lasted 19 years while Stephen was king, and it was always going from bad to worse. Wherever cultivation was done, the ground produced no corn, because the land was all ruined by such doings. And they said openly that Christ and his saints were asleep. Such things too much for us to describe. We suffered 19 years for our sins. I'm going to read that last sentence again. We suffered 19 years for our sins. He goes through chronicling all of this incredible torture by this king that takes place for 19 years under his rule. And in the end, the storyteller here who's recounting these facts that happen says we have no one to blame but ourselves. It was because of our sin that these people were tortured in this way, that so many were starved, that our land fell fallow. It was because of our sins. Fast forwarding back to King James and this idea of the Stoic subject, you get an idea of how ingrained this belief structure was in the people, that they had no right to rebel against the king because doing so would be an affront to God himself, that the only pious thing you could do was to pray to ask God for a more just ruler. That didn't stop everyone. Um, The now famous gunpowder plot takes place in 1605. I'm not going to do a whole history of that. It's super cool. And actually, there's actually a really good um, mini-series on HBO that covers it. I want to say it's called Gunpowder. I don't remember. Um, but it's actually super interesting, and it's actually really entertaining and mostly historically accurate, uh, which is cool. And um, just a side bit of trivia, the dude who plays Jon Snow in the Game of Thrones, what's his name? Kit Harrington, I think. He I've plays. i watched that in my life. He plays, he he has a leading role in that, and I didn't know this, but he's direct lineage, like his great-great-great-whatever-grandfather was the person he plays in the miniseries and took part in the gunpowder plot, which is just a dope piece of trivia. Anyways, it's good. Check that out if you want that history. The only reason it's important is because it was an assassination attempt. They tried to bomb Parliament, and King James, as you might imagine, based on everything I just explained about him, is pissed. And so he implements an oath of allegiance. Remember, we just talked about the oath of fidelity that the serfs had to give to their lord. He implements an oath of allegiance that all English Catholics were forced to take, basically everyone throughout the land. 
So I'll just read an excerpt of that. I do truly and sincerely acknowledge, profess, testify, and declare in my conscience before God in the world that our sovereign Lord King James is lawful and rightful king in this realm, and of all other in his majesty's dominions and countries, and that the Pope, neither of himself, nor by any authorities of the church or see of Rome, or by any means, by, uh, by, by any means with any other hath any power or authority to depose the king, or depose of his majesty's kingdoms, blah, blah, blah. He's saying... He forces them in this oath to say that the king is the supreme leader, and no one, not even the pope, has the power to challenge the king. This is just kind of a thing that King James was doing at the time, so you get an idea of sort of what he's thinking. Like I said, this is a consolidation of the political power with the uh, theological power at this point, but also we have to stress that this is the consolidation of political, religious, and economic power. Remember, Let's think of like, let's say you're a serf. Do you actually believe in the divine right of kings? Well, you probably don't have enough theological knowledge to really dissect it. You've, you know about James. You definitely haven't read any of his works. But you go to church and you are preached to constantly about this thing. Even if the point is you didn't believe in this, there still is the economic realm which uh, James has his authority in. And this links all the way back to uh, William the Conqueror, which is why we did that history. Because not only is the king the ultimate political ruler— and the ultimate religious ruler, he also is the ultimate landlord. He still is the owner of all of the land in England. And everything, all of the other steps down the pyramid to the lords and the serfs and everything in between, he is still the ultimate landowner. So he still has power over all of the land. So even if you don't believe in the king as the head of church, you know he controls the knights and all of the upper other like apparatuses of force and all of the land. So he's the ultimate political ruler. He's the ultimate religious ruler as the king of the Church of England, sorry, the head of the Church of England. And he is the ultimate economic ruler as the end all owner of all land. He's the ultimate landlord. So this is a synthesis of all of these different concepts in one man in this case. Intentionally, it's a man uh, when we're talking about James, clearly, patriarchy again. Remember, when Elizabeth was queen, she didn't get to be the head of the church. She had to be its governor. So this is the synthesis of all of these three things in one person. This is why we do this history when we talk about ideology, because the king in this case is the embodiment of all of these different beliefs and faiths that people have in private property, in religion, in the monarchy, in the political system, and so on. And it becomes embodied in one person who can control the narrative. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know that I have a lot to add to that. I mean, uh, it, it, probably sitting at home, there are, are a few like very patriotic, maybe Americans that are saying, "Well, that's why we rebelled against the king and stuff like that." Eh, technically, yeah, we did separate church and state in theory, but the institutions that were left behind because of this are still considered holier than thou. We may not say so. But our mere patronage, our mere subscription to them, our mere subservience to them reveals all of it. It reveals it. We are still practicing the same. We may say it differently. We might have three different whatever parts to the government structure, which actually England eventually had anyway uh, before the United States became a thing. But regardless, we might have these things and say we've somehow separated a little bit from this, but we really haven't, right? The same basically channels of behavior still exist. The names and the language might have changed, but the behaviors haven't. There's still wholesale ideological uh, uh, subscription here. 
pledging allegiance, making little children pledge their allegiance. Again, being conditioned almost like, or classically conditioned like Pavlov's dog. The minute a certain song comes on at a sports stadium, we all stand and put our, our, our hands to our hearts. That's, that's ritualization of behavior. That is ideological construction. And even if it's not purely ideological and that you are a wholesale believer in this, merely the social pressure to do so is enough to get us to do this. That social pressure, you might not be the most patriotic person or maybe you have a problem with police brutality or constant wars in other parts of the world and yet you'll still stand because every the other 70,000 idiots are all also standing. Like that's what we're talking about. So it is all still alive and well today. That's why this matters. In that case, that ultra patriotic cause, um, we are actually going to do an episode in the future of how this monotheism maybe even leaves Christianity, maybe even leaves Judaism, maybe even leaves Zoroastrianism and Islam and becomes a new religion, better now known as, and you can look this one up, we'll be doing an episode on it, the American civic religion. That being the one truth, that being like the singular narrative to everything. So again, we may not call it a, a religion because it makes it sound bad, but it is a religion. It has all of the, the tools, the ideological hold on us that a traditional religion has. And that's, and why, so that's we why James spent, is important. Yeah, that's why we spent so much time going through this history and talking about divine right, because it has a direct correlation to the way that society is structured today. Like Jared said, the religiosity has been removed from the government. It has been removed from the economy. Well, right? in some ways. I was saying in other ways, you know, like, you know, Kansas teaching evolution stuff. Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a thing. But, um. but the point is we still have faith. We still have faith in democracy. We still have faith in capitalism as if they are religious systems. We still believe and they rely on our belief in order to exist. And we still look to them as ultimate authorities in both the political and the economic realm. And now religion is its own separate thing. But the overlap between these things is so crucial, which is why we kind of focus this part on King James, because he himself specifically writes at length about these things, and he himself is the embodiment of three things in one person. Later, that gets fractured, like Jared said, but the belief as if they are religious belief systems, continues on and still continues to this day. We'll have episodes all about that. And if you listen to our episode on Weber and the Protestant ethic, this is his theory for capitalism, and you have already heard that side, the economic side of this conversation. Well, and further in the economic side, King James happens to be the king in our other prior episode in the series Myth is America uh, about the Virginia Company and the founding of Jamestown. So again, this is where all of it kind of comes together. We're looking at it now through a more in-depth, like maybe European-oriented lens, at least in terms of the history. And the other two were more America-oriented, but now they come together and we can kind of see all of the crossover reflexive relationships um, and where basically all of this intersects to create something new and unique here and new and unique don't necessarily need to be positively charged either like i said there's still full-scale ideological subscription we may not say it to god anymore but the fact that we are thinking about perhaps spending money seven days a week shows we might have a different god now all right that'll do it catch us online revolutionandideology.com you can subscribe to us on YouTube where we put all of our episodes and other videos that we create for our classes and just for entertainment purposes. So search Revolution and Ideology on YouTube if you're not already listening to this episode there. Uh, if you really like what we're doing, you can support us on Patreon. But all that we really ask is that you recommend us to your friends and leave us a review on whatever podcast app you are listening to this on. If you're on YouTube, leave us a comment, uh, like the video, let us know what you think. Um, yeah, that's it. I'm Nick. I'm Jared.
Till next time.